let's get going because we, I got a lot I want to go through today. And I'm excited about this series and I hope you guys are too. Um, you know, what, what's been fun is, is the more I've talked to some of you, some of you guys are, are uh, you know, will come up to me and say, hey, you know, I really enjoyed this or this, you know, I never saw this in that light before. And that's all great things because I believe there's a reason that we're doing this series now versus when two years ago when I wrote it down. Because everything's been kind of been in some sort of order. And it's really worked out well, which tells you that I had nothing to do with it. Because, well, let's just leave it at that. But it's this whole idea of this new man and understanding what that means and who he is. It's the key to everything. This whole concept of being in him, unlocking everything. Like, we have to understand it. And we have to understand it from a scriptural standpoint. Because and just talking, what well, you know, Janet was teaching on this morning, and, and, uh, and we were talking about different things. It's like, we don't believe the word. We agree with it. We agree so much with what the Bible says. But to truly believe it, we're not there yet. And I don't know what it's going to take to get us there. You know, the apostles believed after the resurrection. Prior to that, they just kind of, okay, Jesus, that's cute. Oh, you're going to go die. Yeah, yeah, sure you are. Oh, you're going to come back three days. Yeah, okay, that's great. You know, it never really sunk in. They just like, you know, kind of in one ear and out the other. Until after it happened. They were devastated for three days, as you're going to see today as we talk about this. But at the end of that, when he comes back, I mean, Thomas didn't believe it. Like, no, 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 no. Unless he shows up here. Unless I put my fingers in, his, in the holes in his wrist. There's no way. He told them they were going to do it. So did they believe his word? No, they didn't. Right? They just kind of, okay, that's cute. That's a nice thing. This is where we're at. We've got to get to the point where God's word is true, and that settles it. And we just believe it because it's not based off of us. Okay? So let's go. Colossians chapter 3. We start in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay? So he's saying that we died and we were raised with him. Obviously, that's not physical. That's spiritual. That's that new man we've been talking about. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Now, we're to put to death the members that are where? On the earth. Okay? What member is not on the earth? Your spirit. Where is he? Seated at the right hand with Christ. Right? Because he is the head, we are the body. We are together. Verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and all. In other words, it don't matter what your background is. If you put on the new man, nothing else matters. That's the end of it. But we don't believe that. Yeah, we agree with it, but we don't believe it. Because if we believed it, we would walk in a fullness and power and the knowledge of God that we would understand the authority that we have in this world, and we would not walk around timidly. We wouldn't, but we do. Because we don't understand. We don't believe it yet. We're getting That's why we're hammering. That's why we read this passage every single week for the last two months, is because we don't get it. We are that new man. If you are created in the image of Christ, then the old man is gone. He died. 
But you were resurrected with Christ after the cross. Three days later, rose with him. That's what baptism is. We baptized a couple of young guys a couple weeks ago. What is that? It's not what makes you right with God. It's a symbol that you are right with God. We're showing the world that we're going into the grave with him as that old man and coming out with newness of life. And we say those things, but we don't believe them. We talk about it all the time, but we don't truly believe it. Because when you believe that you're the righteousness of God in Christ, anytime a thought crosses your mind contrary to that, you'll shut it down. You'll take that thought captive. You'll get rid of it. Why? Because it doesn't line up with the word. It's not who I am to you. It's who I am to him that matters. And the problem is today is we have a leadership problem in this world. We have a bunch of pansies. That's the reality of it. We got a bunch of weaklings that walk around and they go with every wind, anywhere it's going, because they don't want to ruffle any feathers. They, they choose their words very carefully. We have pastors that are basically politicians that will tell you what you want to hear versus what the truth is. They'll mold that statement in a way that will make you comfortable enough with it that you won't throw stones at it. Is that what Jesus had intended for his church? Absolutely not. He needed people with boldness that will stand in the face of adversity and say, no, this is the truth. And it's not because we say it, it's because he said it. Right? So are you the righteousness of God in Christ? Were you created in him? Yes, you were. Therefore, the old is gone and the new has come. Therefore, quit dwelling on what you did before you were made new. Because it doesn't matter. It's what you are right now. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Two different things. They're boasting on how they look, how they sound. But we should be boasting on who we are. That's what the heart is talking about there. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. It forces us. The love of Christ makes me say this because we judge thus that if one died for all, one being Christ, then all died. And he died for all. And those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So are you living for him? We would say, well, sure we are. But does everything that you say and do bring glory to God? And then if you look at it in that light, you're like, well, then no, we're not. Because all we're concerned with is meeting our needs. I want to be fed. I want to be clothed. I want to be comfortable. We were talking about discipleship this morning, right? We don't know what that means anymore. Because in order to truly do discipleship, we should really look at what Jesus did. And he hung around with a bunch of idiots that said a bunch of stupid stuff that were really out to lunch on a lot of different things and constantly had to smack him around and straighten him out, right? That's what he did. Well, we don't want to take the time for somebody who's new in the Lord to really be there for them when they need us. We don't want to be bothered. We can't, we can't fit time into our schedules. We don't understand what discipleship is. Who should be discipling people? Everybody. Everybody. It's not me. It's us. We should all have people underneath of us that we have been working with and talking to and showing the light of Christ. And when they begin to get off a little bit, what do we do? We bring them back to the word. That's what we do. We correct them with scripture, not opinion. Okay? So if, if Christ died for all, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We should live for him. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Doesn't matter what you did. Doesn't matter what your status in life is. I don't care how big your checkbook is. 
okay? We don't regard you according to that. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a big if there, that means everyone is, means if you are, then you are a new creation, okay? You started over. He didn't fix the old, he killed it and created a new. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become, become new. Now, all things are of God. Now, what things is he talking about there? Us. We're the things that were made new. It's the same context. We use all things that become new. We think things, chairs, cars, houses, whatever. He's talking about us. Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. So the Father did it, brought us to him through his Son. Right? No big mystery there. We understand that. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's where we're missing it. That, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That agrees with every scripture we read last week, right? That the Father and the Son were one. If you've seen me, then you've seen him. And if you can't believe my word that I'm telling you this, believe on the works themselves, right? That's what he said. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as we've said, in him is the key that unlocks everything. The righteousness of God in him. If you're not in him, you can't be the righteousness of God. So it doesn't matter what church you go to, because that doesn't make you righteous. It doesn't matter what good things you do, because that doesn't make you righteous. What are those things called? The old things that have passed away. We are created in Christ's image for good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. We're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, for good works, before the foundations of the world. It's when we were created, not when we were born. That's not what it's talking about. We were created in him when we gave our lives to him. So now if we're in him, then we are the righteousness of God. You guys see how that works? And you got to get that. You are literally, the spirit of Christ is in you. Your spirit is made new. It is in the image of God. We should walk a little bolder. Not haughty, confident. There's a big difference. We're not walking around arrogantly like we have all the answers. We're walking around confidently as that we know where the answers come from. And we know the one who did the work. Because just like I said, lest any man should boast, right? If it was based off anything you could do, then you could walk around arrogantly and say, I'm in. Too bad for you. It's kind of like that whole Calvinistic approach where God chose some to go to heaven and some go to hell. Right? Well, that's still God's sovereignty. He made the choice, right? I'd be walking around like, I'm in. <laughs> You're not. You want to be me, don't you? You know, I mean, we can't be arrogant because it had nothing to do with us. Like, what can we brag about? It's like this. Okay, think about this. You guys have seen this in life, right? You've got a very wealthy, let's just say a man, made millions and millions of dollars, passed said wealth onto child after he dies, right? What does that child have to brag about? Nothing. What did he do to earn it? Nothing. What do they typically do with it? Spend it all, right? It's because they didn't earn it. The father earned it. He did everything to set himself up. Okay, let's put it in a, in a biblical sense. What did Solomon do to build the temple? Nothing. He just did what his dad, his dad paid for it all. Solomon gets all the credit. What does Solomon have to do? Uh, you see that pile of stuff over there? Can you make it into a building? Right? I mean, 
It's like, this would be the example, okay? Let's say that, that I, for my children, I buy every scrap of lumber to build them their dream house, right? Here's your job, son. Just make them build it. That's all you got to do. Could he call a contractor? Yeah, he could. That's all he had to do. It's already paid for. It's the same thing with us. It's based off of what he did. We're in him, not in us. Thank God. Like, I am so thankful that I am not the example that people have to look at on how to be right for God. And you ought to be too. I'm thankful that I'm not. Thankful that you're not. Let me clarify that, right? You're all sitting there like, oh, thank God it's not him. The world would be in trouble. Right? Because I have some flaws, I think. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what they are, but there's probably one or two. Like, I'll bet you uh, Susan could find a couple. No, she's, uh, she's busy. Um, like, every time I'm cooking something, Susan goes behind me like, I think I've cleaned it. And then I come back in after Susan's been there, I'm like, oh, that's what clean looks like. Right? She, she gets to follow behind me, but she does it with a smile on her face. At least when I see her. She might be grinding her teeth. Got to scrub this thing again. Ugh. You know, whatever. But, but the reality is, is that we're in him, and that's what unlocks everything. So why did Jesus come into the world? To destroy the works of the devil. And as we saw, what was the works of the devil? It was sin. He took, we are no longer slaves to sin. Why? He destroyed it. So we can't be the righteousness of God in Christ if sin is in us. And sin's not in us because our spirit is seated with him. Now, our flesh, our outward body, still has a few things to work out. But it's going to go away. It's going to disappear. So Jesus, his entire ministry, this is what we're looking at. It's not just in him when he was there. We know that part. But what was he doing before that? And what is he doing right now? Because we read the part in the four Gospels where he was on the earth and the work he did. But once he disappeared, ah, he's out of the picture. Now it's time to look at the disciples. But yet, he's still doing stuff. And before that, he was doing stuff, right? Because he and the Father are one. We always look at the Old Testament like the Father is the one moving the pieces around. We talked about this cosmic chess match that's going on. But as you're going to see today, is that you're going to watch these pieces begin to get moved into place. And some of them don't make any sense, at least to us. But you move the, you're, you're setting up for that next move. So we look at John chapter 5. He's talking to the disciples, excuse me, not the disciples, the Pharisees. In verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures. What are the scriptures? It'd be what we call the Old Testament, the, uh, the, the, the Pentateuch and the, and the prophets and all of this. For in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. So here's the substance of what they've been reading about which is where they'll find life, but they refuse to do it. You search them thinking you're going to find life in them, but life is standing in front of you. They refuse to see it. Let's look at Luke chapter 24. We built an entire year-long series out of this passage right here. Verse 13, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. This is what we call the Emmaus Road, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So what are they talking about? This Jesus guy, he just got crucified. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went to them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So he's, he's cruising right along with them, but they don't recognize who he is. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is it this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have, which have happened here there in these days. Now, think about this. Two things. Jesus shows up, right? Who's he talked to? A man named Cleopas and somebody else. Is Cleopas one of the disciples? 
No, he's not. So there are a lot of people that knew about what was going on. He says, are you the only one in Jerusalem that has no clue? In other words, this is front page news, right? This, is, this would be blasted on Facebook. People would be live streaming it. Um, I don't know all the social media. Snapchat, can you Snapchat? They'd be putting bunny ears on Jesus while he's on the cross or something. You guys don't know what Snapchat is. Talk to these guys in the back. They'll explain it to you after service. They know all about it. All right, verse 18. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have, not, have you not known the things which happened these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, okay, mighty indeed in word, before God and all the people. All right? So they knew him as a prophet, spoke the things to come. He was mighty indeed in the things that he did and the things that he said. What things did he do? Healed the sick, right? What things did he say? He preached the gospel. He taught in the synagogue. And it was before God and all the people. I mean, they knew what he was there to do. It wasn't just the people. It was before God as well. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. What is he saying? They're talking about the way they thought. We were hoping this was the Messiah. I mean, the prophets have been talking about him for years. We were hoping that this was him. But we were hoping that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this day, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that he had also seen, they had also seen a vision of, an, of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Okay, so it's confirming the stories that we've read and all of that. Verse 25, then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, what's he referring to? The scriptures. You don't believe all the words that they said. Ought not the Christ, which could be the Messiah, the anointed one is what that means, to have suffered these things. And to enter his glory. Now, why did he say that? Because they weren't expecting him to suffer. Remember, we've talked about this before. They were not looking for a suffering servant. They were looking for that king to come up and set his kingdom up. That's why the disciples kept saying, Jesus, can we be at your right hand? Because they're thinking he's setting up his throne. He's going to rule from Jerusalem right now. Verse 26, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things enter his glory? And beginning at Moses... And all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What does that tell us? That everything that Moses wrote and all the prophets said were about him. That's why we spent a year, a year going through that. Remember, when I started that series on the Emmaus Road, I thought it was going to be three months long. Okay? That thing grew legs and ran. And I'm glad it did. You know, because I don't always have the foresight to see everything that the Lord's going to show. Because I'm telling you what, as long as studying that, I learned a lot. There was way more than I ever could have thought. But every word of your Old Testament is about him, which is part of the reason we should spend some time on it. So what was Jesus doing before he stood right there on this earth? What was he doing? He was a part of that chess match. Okay? Now, we read this. So he was in creation, no question, right? In John 1, we read this last week, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, right? Part of the creation. We know that. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. 
Okay? The word being Jesus, we know that. Verse 14 tells us that. So what was made without Jesus doing it? Nothing. We always think of the Father as the one doing that in the Old Testament. But Jesus is on every page because every page is written about him. So we see him at creation. We also see him at the fall. Right? In Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the seed war, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, ultimately referring to Jesus. Because he is going to come and he is going to take care of this. This was the curse that was on the serpent. And we know this is about Jesus. So Jesus was right there. He was probably the one speaking these. And also he was the one spoken of in these things. Because he was going to come and take care of it. So we see it there. But we also see it in the time of Noah. Now, what was going on in Noah? In Genesis 6, you start to see the story, and, and there were uh, giants in those days, and the angels came down and took the daughters of men and took for themselves wives, and you've got all of that going on. And then, of course, it says that there was uh, evil in men's heart only. And so God is going to send a flood because he regretted creating mankind, and he's going to wipe out the earth, but there was one who was perfect in his generation, that being Noah. And Noah was to take his kids and his wife and their wives, eight people, onto the ark. He said, you're going to build a boat. It'll be a big boat, and you're going to take all the different animals, and we just did this Monday night with them, right? How many of each kind of animal went on the ark? Wrong. Not two. They went in two by two. He took two of the unclean and seven of the clean. Go back and read it. Get out of your nursery rhymes and your Sunday school stories. That's not what it is. Now listen, when you start getting that many animals, they don't fit well on flannel graph boards, if you guys remember that, for you older folks, for you newer folks, cartoons and all that, no big deal. Veggie Tales can take care of it. But for us older folks, I say that as if I'm like the oldest one up here, but we remember the flannel graph. Do you remember the flannel graph? You were a rock star at the flannel graph, right? Like she'd get up there and she's doing voices. Oh, here's the bone, blah, blah, blah. You know, she was great. She, she, she rocked it. I mean... So, and then I projectile vomited at one of her, uh, her assistants when she took the week off. So, good day to be gone. But anyway, but yeah, why do we think it's two by two? Because that's what we hear. They went in two by two. It wasn't two of each kind. Why? Because we don't know our Bible. Go back and don't believe me. Go back and read it. It'd be a good exercise for you. Maybe I'm making it up. So, he said, you're going to build a boat. Now, what else was going on in this world? No rain, ever. A mist came up and watered the garden. There was no rain. So here, you, can you imagine, 120 years to build this boat, right? People coming up, what are you doing? Oh, I'm building a boat. Well, what's a boat? Well, it's this big thing, and we're going to get in there because the, the world's going to flood. Well, what's a flood? Right? I mean, it's like, this doesn't make any sense. He's building it on dry land, right? They didn't have big, you know, uh, 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 things to pick it up and move it into the water. So they had to think he was nuts, right? And so he's building this ark and all of that. Where's Jesus in the midst of this? moving the pieces, right? Because Noah's fulfilling his end of the obligation. Here's what I want you to do. And he does it. And he said, the animals are going to come to you, which is what they do. He didn't say you had to go out and hunt them down. Two of every kind? Yep, except seven of the, of the clean. Why seven of the clean? Because you can eat those and you can sacrifice those. The unclean you can't. What's the difference between clean and unclean? Read Leviticus, but you, swine, pigs, you know. So no bacon for Moses. That's a shame. Okay? But when it's all completed and he's getting ready to flood, where is Jesus? Well, let's look at chapter 7 of Genesis, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. When you say come, what does that imply? Where's he at? He's in the ark. Right? If I'm standing outside, 
what would I say to you to go into the church? I'd say, go into the church. If I'm standing inside, what would I say? Come. So where was he? He's in the midst of the very vessel that he had them create when judgment is coming on the world. And he's the one that shut the door and sealed it. Had to be a big door. They may not have been able to pick it up. He was right there with them the entire time. Think about that for a minute. So where's Jesus? He's there. Why did he send this, this flood? Well, if you understand the things that were going on in Genesis 6, it makes a lot more sense. And I don't want to get sidetracked by that kind of stuff because we will be here all day, I guarantee it. So, but the bottom line is, is God is destroying the world. And he made a promise at the end of this whole thing. He said, I'll never destroy the world again by water. And he said, he gave him the rainbow as the sign of that covenant, that promise. Come. And then he said the most important words that were ever mentioned in the Bible, at least in my opinion, is that now I give you permission the best thing that ever happened praise the lord they were vegans and jesus knew that we needed that steak he knew it so he made a way where there seemed to be no way i'm sorry guys i don't know what's wrong with me today too much coffee this morning or something so we see that whole thing going on (laughs) i'm excited nebraska's getting a new coach i'm feeling frosty today y'all all right uh, make sure you edit that out of the, uh, okay, I'm just kidding. So, but you see what happens. And what were they told to do as soon as they landed? He said, I need you to spread out. I need you to, to fill the world and repopulate. And they begin this, and there's some different things that go on. And then you get the whole story of the Tower of Babel, right? Every pagan religion goes back to the Tower of Babel. Were pagan things going on before that? Absolutely, but they all got wiped out. So they started all over again. So you got the Tower of Babel. But what happens in chapter, is it 11? Chapter 11 right after that is that God calls Abraham, right? Or chapter 12, chapter 12. He calls Abraham and he says, listen, I'm going to make you a, a mighty nation. Look at this, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse them, him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what's not seen here is understanding what is going on at this time where he's at, because they are not monotheists. They are polytheists, and they are worshiping everything that moves and doesn't move. And so all of a sudden, God comes down and chooses him and said, here's what I'm going to do. And you need to get up and you need to go. And he gets up, and court it sort of goes, but he takes his time to get where he's supposed to be. But there's promises of God here, because this is the beginning of the separating out of himself a nation, which is crucial, because this nation is going to be a nation of kings and priests. It's going to be separated from all the world. Therefore, you're going to have uh, different things that you are going to do, the way that you eat, the way that you dress, the way that you worship is going to be different for one reason, that they will know that God is God, that he is Yahweh. Now, at this point, they don't know his name. In fact, it's not until Moses that God reveals his name to them. Okay? So right now, they're just worshiping God. They don't, they don't, they don't know that he's Yahweh. And then in chapter 15, we see this in verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, theirs and will serve them. And they will afflict them 400 years. And also, the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, 
you should go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that had passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All of this land is yours, Abraham. I'm giving it to you. And he made the covenant on behalf of Abraham. And we talked about that, right? He did it for him because Abram can't screw it up then. His name is still Abram. But he said, listen, you're going to live in a land that is not yours. You're going to be strangers there. Things are going to be good. But for 400 years, your people are going to be serving them. And, but don't worry. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to bring them out. And when I do, they're going to come out with great possessions. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the land of Egypt and the Exodus. And did they come out with great possessions? Oh, you better believe it. You bet. Now, this is laid out hundreds of years before this is going to happen. But this is a part of getting those things in place. So what happens when God reveals his plan? It gives the 100 years to lay down a minefield in the area which they were going. Now, think about what is the land of promise? The promised land. But what happens, and you'll see this next week, as they begin to go in there, well, wait a minute, there's giants in those lands. We are but grasshoppers in their sight. What is that minefield? Go back to Genesis 6. Go back to Genesis 3. The seed of the woman. In this case, the Raphaim, the Canaanites, these are all those um, Nephilim tribes. You can study that out for yourself. The Anakim, all of those guys. So we see all of this thing going hot. But then here comes this son named Isaac, right? He has a son named Isaac. And you got the story of Isaac. Uh, having Jacob after this, right? So this is important because we see this chess match. Now, did the enemy know what God's plan was before he revealed it to Abram? No, he did not. Does he know the plan for your life? No, he does not. So the idea that, oh, God, or the enemy's attacking me because he knows I'm going to do this, this, and this. No, he does not. He only knows what the Father says, if we would just simply follow that. But be that as it may. We get out of Isaac and we come to Jacob. We know the story with Abraham and Isaac, right? Take him up on the mountain. This is the son of the promise. It's a picture of Christ. All of those things. But if Isaac's not around, we don't have Jacob. What's another name for Jacob? Given to him as Israel. So let's look at this. Genesis chapter 27, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death, but now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. This is where we go back and thank God the whole Noah thing happened, right? Because now he can eat meat. Otherwise, you're going to like, will you go pick me some apples? That's not as fun. He wants a stew. No, you can't live off apple pie alone. Man shall not live by apple pie alone, thus saith the Lord. Verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, Rebekah being the mom. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice of kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. 
Then you shall make it to your father, take it to your father, and that he should, may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. Now, what we don't see and understand that's going on here because we're not Jewish is that this blessing of the father on the older son. He puts his right hand on him. This is the blessing of the Lord being bestowed upon him. Um, you know, it, it was always to the oldest, and then everything that was left would go to the younger. But the be best blessing went to the father. And remember, the whole Esau thing, he sold his birthright. All of this stuff is going on. This is playing out. But what's the mom doing? She's kind of being a little underhanded here, right? Why? Because he can't see. Isaac can't see nothing. So he's like, huh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dress you up. We're going to make you smell weird. And we're gonna, I'm going to cook the food. We're going to feed this guy well. So let's jump down to chapter 27, verse 15. Then Rebekah took the choice of the clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared then into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? In other words, you're like, Boy, you, uh, you must... They must have been standing outside, and you shot them. It's kind of like if you shot a deer from your living room, you know. Same concept. You don't get up. It's just there. You roll up the window a little bit. You put the rifle out, and you pull the trigger and shoot it, right? That's a great idea, isn't it? There's an underlying joke behind that that some of you are not picking up on. I thought this story had taken more legs than it has. So if you have any questions, please see Sherry. She'll tell you all about it. But Isaac said to his son, how is it you found it so quickly? And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So he's not buying it. So Jacob went near to Isaac and his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Then he said, are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He said, bring it near me. Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field, which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. Those last two lines are so powerful. Why? Because if you've ever read ahead, and I know most of you have, Jacob's name is going to be changed to Israel, which you're going to see in a minute. What was Abraham said? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Now here's Isaac, the son of Abraham, saying the same thing to Israel, essentially. So he gives this blessing to him. Of course, that does not make Esau very happy. He gets a little ticked off, right? As, as can understand. Now, he'd given away his right to this, but still he wanted it anyway. Now, it took some underhanded tricks to get in this place, but in chapter 32, we see this kind of story unfold a little bit because we're getting to the point of who Jacob was, and ultimately, he is Israel. And so in verse 22, it said, And he rose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the fort of Jabbok. Now, he is running from Esau. He's heard Esau's on his way, and he's freaking out. And he's trying, he's like trying to coordinate all these things, and you're like, you guys go up there, and you meet him there, and kind of head him off the path, and take all this stuff with you, and kind of bribe him, pay him away, because he's going to kill me. All right, here we go, 23. So he took them, sent them over to the brook, 
and sent over what he had. Now remember, it says 11 sons. Don't forget that. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said to me, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Does Jacob know who he's wrestling with? Yes, he does. He knows exactly who it is. Who are we talking about here? This is Jesus. This is Christ. Now you can argue, ask the question, well, why is he wrestling? That doesn't make any sense. Well, Israel wrestles with God pretty much their entire existence. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Does that sound like the story of the nation of Israel? Did they struggle with God? Oh, you bet. Did they struggle with man? Oh, you bet. Are they still doing those things? Oh, you bet. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So he didn't know his name. Why not? His name doesn't get revealed till later to Moses. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Now, there's a lot going on there I don't want to get into and get sidetracked. He wrestled with God. Here's Jesus setting this up. And what did he do? He changed his name to Israel. This is where the nation of Israel is born. At this point, he had 11 sons. He will have a 12 very shortly. And, but ultimately, he meets up with Esau. Esau said, hey, it's all good. We're fine. You know, I don't need any of your stuff. They kind of go together. Jacob sends him over, you know, to the promised land, if you will, uh, before him and all this other stuff. There's a bunch of backstory that's going on here. But look at chapter 35 and verse 22. It says, now the sons of Jacob were 12. So we're a little bit in the future, right? The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservants, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservants, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram, which is where he goes. But who are these 12 people? These are the 12 tribes of Israel who were the 12 sons of Jacob. So what was God doing? He's moving the pieces in place. He's getting everything ready to go. Did the enemy have any idea what was happening here? Absolutely not. He has no idea. But so it started with a man named Abraham, right? He takes him and will set you apart. And then he begins to move the pieces, and that nation begins to grow. And now he gives the nation a name. Started with a man, and now it has a name. And this is where everything comes from. But then we get past and go a little further in the future, and we see a guy named Joseph. And Joseph has a unique story. And his whole premise is he's protecting the people. Let's look at this. Chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. Okay, so who are we talking about? Israel, Jacob, right? This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph. So you see the names changing from verse 1 to verse 3, right? Jacob and Israel is interchangeable. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably 
to him. You know what's sad in churches today is that when the church and a pastor reads that passage, they'll talk about how we're not supposed to show favor one child over another. That is not the point of what is going on here. Do not get caught up in this hyperbole and making this analogous of something else. Should we love one child more than another? Absolutely not. But the reality is we probably do because you got one that grinds your nerves. That's one you don't like as much, right? Don't look at me like that. Y'all, I am not alone. Mine change every day. One morning, this one's good. Hey, you're my favorite. The next morning, hey, why don't you go play outside in the street? I'm just kidding. I don't say that. I'm just kidding. Chapter 39, verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Why? Because his brothers hated him. You know the story. They throw him in the pit. They sell him into slavery. Here we are. He takes him down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites. Who had taken him down there? The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Well, this is interesting. He's sold into slavery. He's bought by a man. He's taken to Egypt, which is ultimately the place that God told Abraham, in a land that is not their own, they will be in bondage for 400 years, right? Pieces being moved. And so everything he did is prosper. And Potiphar notices this. He sees what's going on. Now, you guys know how this story ends up because the wife accuses him of this and it's all for naught. And so it's up and down in Joseph's life all the way across. But the Lord prospered his hand. Everything. Everything he touched turned to gold, so to speak. Chapter 41, verse 42. Then Pharaoh, now that we're in Pharaoh, so we're out of Potiphar. Now we're here with Pharaoh. Took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Why did he do this? Joseph was able to interpret dreams. His dreams is what got him in trouble in the first place. As his dream, where all his family is going to bow down to him, family doesn't like that. Even Jacob gets on him a little bit like, are you kidding me? Like, knock it off. So he gets elevated. Pharaoh has dreams. He interprets about this famine that's going to come on the land and all of that. So he takes off that signet ring. What is that signet ring? That is representative of the authority of Egypt. You have the power of Pharaoh in your hand. Whatever you say goes. And he expounds upon that. He says, without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So here you have an Israelite being promoted to a place of power and authority in a foreign land. We see that time and time again throughout Scripture. What is God doing? Moving the pieces. The enemy have any idea the impact that Joseph is going to have? No, he doesn't. Okay? Verse, chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph, now this, let me, let me back up before I go into this. They have the famine hits, so the people from Israel are coming to the land of Egypt because that because Joseph was pulling in all of these supplies, getting ready for this famine, the seven-year drought that's going to take place. And so they would have to travel to Egypt in order to get these items, in order to have food because there is a drought in the land. All right, chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself because his brothers are standing there before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. His brothers don't know who he is. He has no idea who they're standing there talking. They just know that they are standing before the power of Egypt, and they're humbled before him. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. 
does, not, does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer, for they were dismayed in his presence. They sold him into slavery. They assumed he was dead by now. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. And then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Who did it? Why? He's moving the people. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, a ruler through all, all the land of Egypt. You see, God knew, and he's moving these pieces around. The enemy didn't know. He's getting these. So the enemy has no idea. He's like, he's trying to maneuver his pieces to get where he needs to be. But God is setting all of this up to preserve what? Preserve the nation of Israel. Ultimately, why? It's that nation that the Messiah is coming from. Think about it. At any point in time, if Jacob's wiped off the map, there is no Israel. If Esau's heart does not get softened, he comes in there and attacks and kills Jacob. There is no Israel. That's important. This is the plan of God, and he's moving everything in place. So the nation is saved and is spared. But unfortunately, it doesn't end there. Because remember, they will be a servant in a land that is not their own for 400 years, which brings us to the story of Moses. In Moses, we know the story of the Exodus. We know the story of the Passover. And that these are the covenant people. But each is progressively getting more knowledge and understanding of what God's doing. Do they realize what's happening in the moment? Probably not. The reality is, is when God tells you something, you may not get it in the moment. But when you can look back, it all becomes clear. Let's look at Exodus chapter 1. And let's see exactly why this takes place and why they become slaves in Egypt. Start in verse 8. Now these, there arose a new king over Egypt. This is coming right out of that story, dealing with Joseph. All right? They were, Israelites were welcomed there, encouraged because of Joseph. And he had the authority to do what he wanted. So now a new king is over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph's gone now. So he didn't know who he was. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel, children of who? Jacob, the nation, are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join in our enemies and fight against us and so go out of the land. So he said, we've got to just deal with them. Because we've got to keep them under control. Because if we get attacked, there's so many of them, we don't want them to join the other side. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. So two cities they built. Verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they... They made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. They bring them into bondage and slavery and they basically turned them into builders. And I mean, it's backbreaking work that they are doing. They're building bricks and they're building all of these buildings and things like that. Why did this happen? Because the nation was growing. It was becoming a mighty people and they were threatened by them. So Pharaoh took it into his own hands. 
Now, we know how the whole story goes. Moses in the basket down the river. The daughter gets him. All of that. Moses leaves the burning bush. We know all of this stuff, right? I can bring out a flannel graph. It'll help you out sometime. We can try to find one. I'll bet they're on eBay. But, 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 but I mean, we know these stories, right? Because we've read them, we've heard them, and all of that kind of stuff. That's not the point. All of this was laid down to Abraham. Here's what's going to happen. And here's what's happening. But look at all the things that took place to get to that point. But they also said, but don't worry. They're the fourth generation. I'm going to bring them out. And they're going to come out and they're going to be loaded. Let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you, speaking to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him grab his neighbor next to his house and take it to, according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you should make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head, its legs, and its entrails. You shall not let you shall let none of it remaining until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with the belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why do they eat it in haste? Get ready to roll. It's going to be going soon. For I will pass through the land of Egypt at, on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And again, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord now. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There were nine judgments brought on the nation of Egypt and their gods. Every one of them was against the gods of Egypt. And this is the last and final one to get Pharaoh to release his people. Why didn't God just go and destroy Egypt? Wouldn't that have been easier? He had to let them go because they were legally owned by Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a picture of the enemy. They were slaves to the enemy. They were slaves to sin, if you will. But how did he release them? Pharaoh had to give the okay to go, right? And by sending that final judgment, what was the key to that? It wasn't the eating of the lamb. And it wasn't the killing of the lamb. It was the applying the blood of the lamb. Because you could have ate, and you could have killed. If you didn't apply that blood, that angel of death was coming into your house. It's no different today. You can do all the right things, but if you never apply the blood of Christ, in other words, put your life in him, it doesn't matter. Because you will die the second death. We are spared from that. So where is Jesus in this? This is, this is him. This is the picture of him. How do we know? 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, in other words, without sin, for indeed Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. He was that Passover lamb. 1 Peter 1, verse 17, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from the, your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. Hmm, 
That was the same thing that had to be done for that lamb that they chose. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Where was Jesus at the time of the Exodus? He was right there with them. They were laying out this picture. Did the enemy know what was about to happen? No, he didn't. And we know what happens. After that takes place, Pharaoh gives him the green light. All right, get him out of here. We're done. And they go, and they take all those possessions with them. Exactly what God had said 400 years prior. And he just, it happens. Why? Because he started laying out those pieces. Now it was time to make a move. So he makes a move, and they start saving. And Pharaoh suddenly is like, nope, we're going to go kill him. They start chasing him. And you know what happens, right? you got the cloud that blocks him at the Red Sea. What is that cloud? And the Red Sea splits, and they go trucking on through, and the enemy tries to go with them, and he can't. He destroys them. Now, where is Christ in all this? Christ is. He's that fire by night. He's that cloud by day. He's the one that got up and moved. He's leading them where he needs them to go because he's moving the pieces in place to get to the point that Jesus is on this earth. We're all heading there. That's where we're going. And we know that because we can go back and look. But look at what Exodus 17 tells us. Now, this is after that. They're through the Red Sea. Now they're wandering. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel sat on, on the journey from the wilderness of sin. Why is it called that? Well, why were they in that wilderness? Because they sinned. They did not believe God. Right? They could have gone in the promised land, but chose not to believe. So they're wandering. According to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted for their water, and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They'd rather go back into sin, into death. Why? Because it was at least comfortable. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river. That's the river where he made it good water. And go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Right? So he did what God said. You go in there, where's, where's, where's God in this picture? Standing there with the rock, right? I'll stand before you. I'm there. Strike the rock, water comes out. That's kind of weird, okay? I don't know how many rocks you've hit in your life, but I've never got water out of them, okay? I also like, prefer to just turn on the fountain, but be that as it may. And there's another time where we see a rock, right? What was he supposed to do? He's supposed to speak to the rock. This whole rock thing is a picture of Christ. How can we make it a picture of Christ? Well, look at it this way. Christ only needed to be struck once. And after that, all those who confess in the name of Jesus, who speak to that rock, are made new in him. That's the picture, right? Well, that's a cute analogy, but how do we know? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea, and all ate that same spiritual food, and all drank that same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Who was that rock? It was Christ. And where was it? It followed them. That's weird. Did it roll behind them a little bit? I don't know. 
But think about what it's just saying. All our fathers were under the cloud. What cloud? Cloud by day. All passed through the sea. What sea? The Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. Okay? Moses being a type of Christ, a deliverer. Bringing them out of the place of bondage and death and bringing them into the new life, that promised land. The cloud is a picture of the Holy Spirit, and it always is. Baptized into Moses, in the Holy Spirit. What was the sea? In the waters. Those are the three baptisms that we live by. But what was that rock? That rock was Christ. Where was he? Moving along with them. And we're just getting started. We're in it a bit. Because we've been here all day. Guys, Jesus was all along. He's moving those pieces into place. Why? Because out of this nation comes the Messiah. If this nation does not exist, neither does our Messiah. Why is that important? You and I would not be talking right now if it was not for that. We wouldn't care. We'd still be in our sins. We'd still be dead spiritually. It's because of him. All the way down to earth. So to understand in him, it's not just in him when he was on this earth. It's not just in him now. It was in him before, laying all the pieces out that we could be where we are today. Amen?